The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is November 27th, 2010. This is your host, Stephen Novella, and we are live from Sydney, Australia. (laughs) Joining me this week is Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Evan Bernstein. Hello. And for our last rogue, Jay is going to do a special introduction. (laughs) Why, Steve? Yeah, why? Hello. Or should I say, hello. (laughs) Um, Okay, so here's the deal. Uh, I lost a science or fiction challenge with Bob. Decisively. (laughs) And it basically was the shortest version of it. It could have been. He swept me. Uh, We had uh, listeners write in and make suggestions about how I'm going to be punished for this. And the punishment was that I have to regale Bob at this event, which is happening right now. So I was thinking, I need the help of the audience to help me appreciate Bob and show Bob the love and affection that he so absolutely requires. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to do a sound check. I want everyone to say Bob's name, and when I raise my hand, you raise your volume. When I lower my hand, you lower your volume. Okay, ready? Bob. Okay. So now, what's going to happen is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to say Bob is, and then Rebecca is going to lift up something that you're going to read, and you're going to say it. <laughs> and we will begin right now. On three. One, two, three. Bob is really fixed. <laughs> okay, that was good. Let's try it again. Let's keep going. Bob is very good-looking. Okay. Bob is one, two, three. Bob is smart. <laughs> and uh, we have one more. So ready? Bob is often misunderstood, but underneath he is actually very smart, charming, and gracious. And though he doesn't often chime in with comments or jokes, it's important to remember that deep down he really does love being a part of the SGU and adds his own particular spice to the stew that is our podcast, Love, Jay.
Well, with that out of the way, <laughs> yeah. we are having a fabulous time down under. Thanks to Richard, it's Richard Saunders, the Australian skeptics have been fabulous hosts. Two years ago, Richard came to us with this idea of bringing us down to, uh, to Sydney to, to be part of the, uh, the annual convention here. Of course, we love the idea, but we were a bit skeptical that we would ever pull it off. But apparently we did, because here we are. We're going to start, as we usually do, with uh, This Day in Skeptical History. Evan, hit it. Yes, hi. Everyone knows today is November 27th. And on this day in 1880 was the birthday of Sir Ralph Freeman. Who was Sir Ralph Freeman, you said? English civil engineer who designed the Sydney Harbor Bridge, which was completed in 1932. Uh, the bridge has a main arch span of 1,650 feet, a deck that is six, 160 feet wide, and it is the world's largest steel arch bridge. That's a big deck. It is. <laughs> Look at that thing. What? <laughs> uh, you, you, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have, we've had a lovely time in Australia so far. We've actually been quite busy, and we have a few pictures to show from the last few days. I know Jay was a little worried coming down here. He was looking up all the things that could kill him in Australia. <laughs> Did you guys know a rhino can kill you? <laughs> Is that a rhino fan? <laughs> Did you guys know a rhino can kill you? <laughs> so, I, um, somebody told me about the funnel web spider. And I did some research. And, like, how are we all alive right now? Like... <laughs> And I, so I went in, I did the, the exact wrong thing. I like researched everything that can kill you here. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to wear leather boots. I'm like going to wear thick jeans. I got, got kind of paranoid. But then now we're in Sydney and, you know, I have not, I saw one spider at the zoo and I tried to make a big deal out of it. And the bottom line is some guy walked by and said, it's not poisonous. And so we haven't seen anything. No giant poisonous spiders. Yeah, just so you know, like, to put nope. Jay's paranoia in perspective, previous to this trip, his um, number one greatest fear is a water spout full of sharks. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's seriously afraid that one day that will happen. A Especially tornado of sharks. coming at me down an alley. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, because where are you going to run from the water spout of sharks when you're in an alley? Right. Jay's. But no spiders. But we did get some pictures of some of the, the native wildlife. This is a kookaburra. I took this picture, part of my, my birding tour, and it is, in fact, sitting in an, an old gum tree. K-I-S-S-I-N-G. Although he wasn't laughing. I said, laugh, kookaburra, laugh, but he didn't. <laughs> and here is a sulfur-crested cockatoo. It's a beautiful bird. They nice were really bird. cool. We were feeding them, like we had some stuff, I know we're not supposed to feed them, but we fed, fed them some snacks that our friends Alan and Rachel gave us, and uh, that was awesome. Yeah, they were like fearless, they came right up to us, it was awesome. We did see a kangaroo. <laughs> we stopped off in the park on the way to the, the Blue Mountains, and like right there, two kangaroos in the wild, so we got our check, kangaroo yeah, went to Australia, saw kangaroos. Yeah. And they're incredibly lazy, they were just like... They were, they were mellow. Just hanging out. They weren't skittish at all. Here's the crew that we went with. What are they, what are they looking at there? It's I a think bird there, or I think, I think there were some, some cockatoos flying by when yeah. I took this picture. Yeah, look at them. And then we saw the, uh, the three sisters. Beautiful. 
really beautiful. Did any of you guys go on the tram at the park? Who's done the tram? The train. The, the train. The, the rail yeah. car the down. Rail car with the, down. The, the rail car that yeah. plummets you to your death. You yeah. guys don't even explore around your own city? Like, two people raise you, their you know what the You know what the thing is with that train that I realized? Is that when you call it a train, it's awesome. If you called it a roller coaster, it's the crappiest ride ever. <laughs> <laughs> just, just go down. There, done. That's, that's my daughter, Julia, by the way, who's an avid birder and enjoyed the, uh, enjoyed the trip. Hi, Julia. All right. We also wanted to, you know, investigate some of the local flavor, see if you guys have any paranormal activity going on in Australia. I, I'm sorry for this one. U.S. technology. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Ion Cleanse Detox featuring U.S. technology. Therefore, well, it, must it must be, be good. good. And, of course, it provides more energy. You can think more clearly. improves your joint mobility. Extracts toxins. Extracts and acids. <laughs> toxins Cash. and acids because you know you want you can't have too many acids in your body your body can't handle that stuff by itself especially you know? those amino acids those right. are rough <laughs> I had all mine removed a few years back <laughs> and does anyone see the pseudoscience in this picture huh? now wait a minute wait I see something it's an awesome is, shirt is that wheatgrass that is wheatgrass. Okay. So Brian, Brian Dunning make sure I'm not seeing things. Is uh, pointing to the wheatgrass. You can get freshly squeezed wheatgrass juice. Um, the, this is particularly funny because Brian and I tried wheatgrass juice when we were filming the pilot of the Skeptologist. Man, that stuff is terrible. It's like it's like drinking lawn clippings. <laughs> and then I had the runs for three days. Great. <laughs> Too much information. Everybody enjoy lunch. Yeah, yeah. good. Good. Green runs. <laughs> just right. saying. Just saying. No, no, no. Way to just bring saying. down the tone of the entire conference. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, let's. Uh, uh, what's the next segment? Oh yeah, things we learned about Australia since we've been here. Um, it's been a, a very steep learning curve. You know, we thought we knew about Down Under, but we have learned a few things. Rebecca, what have you learned since you've been here? Well, I learned, um, I learned how bats poo. <laughs> really? I, I, didn't you always wonder? Like, maybe you don't because you see them everywhere, but, I mean, they hang upside down. So, I mean, doesn't it just, how does it get out? <laughs> <laughs> And then, so I always thought that they just pooed while flying, but then they took us to the botanical gardens and there was poo just under the tree limbs where they were. And so it turns out they like, they like lever themselves up a bit to take a poo. And that's all. <laughs> Who would have figured? I know. I don't, I couldn't work it out myself. I would have been a terrible bat. <laughs> Let's see. We learned that you don't put shrimp on the bobby because you eat prawns, not shrimp, right? Prawns. You got something mm -hmm. anything, Jay? Well, there was a lot of controversy about whether or not koalas get high. And a lot of people said they do, and a lot of people said they don't, and I just don't, we still don't know what the no, truth I, is. I, I, we know, I know the up. answer to that. Jay, we asked a trainer. I had a koala over at my flat last night, actually, and we smoked up a bit. It was yeah. good. <laughs> it was good. Pretty, well, uh, pretty chillaxed. At least the lady at the zoo, lady, said <laughs> that... Uh, <laughs> They, that's a, it's a myth. They, they handle all the toxins from the eucalyptus leaves, and they're just sleepy because they get no energy from their food. So. Speaking, of poo, speaking of poo, the trainer said that the baby uh, koala has to eat some of its mom's poo, and that's where it gets its initial immunity from, you know, its first experience right. with the toxins, and it builds up an immunity to them. Mm -hmm. Right. That's the theme oh, of the rest of the show, so yeah, yeah, I hope you guys are down with that. 
I learned, I learned that Yahoo Sirius isn't the respected actor here that I thought he was. <laughs> so everything I learned about Australia and Einstein came from Yahoo Sirius. <laughs> and Jay learned to play the didgeridoo. <laughs> Beautiful. I didn't say you learned to play it well. All right. Let's go on to some news items. Uh, Evan, why am I looking at a picture of a crystal skull? That's a good question, Steve. It's a nice skull. It is a nice skull, Bob, isn't it? Do you have one in your collection, Bob? Um, Yeah, I got one crystal. Does it talk to you? (laughs) Do you communicate with it psychically? And does it sing songs to you? No. Oh, maybe it's not is that a what this one does? Skull, other ones talk, this is good news. One. <laughs> Bob just rubs it slowly. <laughs> I'm sure. <I'll>... Steve, <laughs> the skull. Oh, sorry, my fault, everyone. My fault. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people in the audience are familiar with the concept or the legend of the crystal skulls, uh, in which these are supposedly very ancient artifacts made thousands of years ago that took generations to craft by the ancient Aztecs and other ancient civilizations. In fact, in some cases, it's been uh, purported that only aliens from other worlds have had the sophistication and the technology to make these amazing, these amazing crystal skulls. Well, that's all bull. And uh, I'm sure we all know that. However, the news this week, though, uh, actually last week, is that a new crystal skull uh, has been brought to the uh, public's attention. Much like the most famous crystal skull known as the Mitchell Hedges Skull, which has a, is known because it has a detachable jaw, as opposed to all other crystal skulls of fame, which are all just single pieces. That was uh, a great innovation, the detachable jaw. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was, well, I think it was the world's first ventriloquist dummy, actually. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's, my, that's my ventriloquist dummy impression. God, Evan, how do we know it, it wasn't just broken? <laughs> because the expert said so, Jay. What experts? Well, um, a new crystal skull has emerged, uh, also with a detachable skull, uh, with a detachable jaw. So that's uh, that's the significance of uh, of the news item this week. A fellow by the name of Philip Coppins. I don't know if anybody is familiar with this fellow. He believes in oh things such as Atlantis and men from Mars and uh, you know the healing powers of crystals and other unique things. Has uh, reported that uh, a new crystal skull with a detachable jaw has been uh, has been brought forward. And uh, although it has not yet been examined by the experts, uh, he claims that this one will definitely confound the skeptics. Uh, and he just found it, did he? I mean, he just had the skull one day? And well, look what uh, I found. one of his uh, dear friends, apparently, a gentleman by the name of Joe Bennett, who is a retired fisherman from Alaska, came into possession of the skull after years of trying to pursue it from a California market after uh, it was uh, being held for five years as part of an estate, but they finally let it go on sale. Uh, they traced uh, the origins prior to it being in California to uh, a uh, family that owned it in Africa. And uh, prior to that, its uh, exact origins were unknown. Probably but, Mars. Yeah, who knows? They say that it is impo- the people that they have let uh, examine it, and of course they haven't let the skeptics or any other really reputable scientists, of course, take a look at the skull, but they're saying it is impossible that this skull 
was uh, created uh, in modern times. Um, most of these crystal skulls go back to the uh, 19th century um, from Central Europe and Germany, which is where a lot of these uh, have been shown to uh, uh, come from and been manufactured. Certainly not taking generations of people to create them, and certainly not from 5, 10, 20,000 years ago, as uh, the people who believe in these sorts of things claim. Well, is it doing anything interesting? Like, is it, is it healing things? Is it melting off the faces of Nazis? Is it, <laughs> like, or is it just a lump of crystal and everybody's... Not yet, but they have had people try to communicate with the skull. You can see there are psychics that specialize in communicating with these pieces. And of here crystal. I thought that pet psychics were the laziest psychics there were. <laughs> the skull says it's bored. <laughs> um, the skull has a name. They've named it Compassion. Uh, be because they say when you look into its, into its eyes, you can't Eye help. Holes. Yeah, exactly. You, you, can't, you can't help but feel a deep sense of compassion. It's sort of like a troubled soul. It, I think it, he it, looks constipated. It, it, <laughs> Maybe it's that's the gritted teeth that's really doing it. Yeah. Um, apparently during a Crystal Skull conference, which occurred in September of 2009. Wait, the what? The, the what? The Crystal Skull Conference <laughs> of September 2009. I wish. Um, they studied the skull closely and they exclaimed, the psychics who were paying attention and deeply concentrating on its vibrations and its energies. And one word, one word came to the psychics, and it screamed, Atlantis! <laughs> Atlantis. What does the space shuttle have to do with this? <laughs> no, it's a, t it's a TV show, Stargate. It's the capital of oh. Georgia. Um, no. SGU, Star Stargate Universe. Can we go back to the fact that there's a conference just about it's, crystal yeah. skulls? And yeah, this maybe. surprises you? I mean... Yeah, actually it does, you know, I mean, I get like, you get these conferences where there's just a whole bunch right. of crazy things all, all in one place, That's but kind of to be that specific, yeah. I bet you all the, cra all the crazy stuff was there. Yeah. We went to a UFO conference once, there were Bigfoot crazies there, I mean, they were all there. Right, the ESP, right. it's just... Little breakaway groups. Pick on your poster child for that conference. Cattle mutilation. They're all, mutilation, they're all yeah. cattle mutilation, yeah. crop circles. It's all good. But so the story is always the same with these, right? So you have a, a lump of crystal, no provenance, right? And it, it's supposed to be thousands of years old, but the history goes back to some guy had it, you know, some in the recent past. And the rest is mystery mongering. It's like, yeah, the psychics validating it, which of course is less than worthless. And people saying, oh, if this is impossible to have created, exactly why is it impossible? I mean, really, it's a lump of crystal. It's been carved into a skull. It's, there's absolutely zero that's extraordinary about it. So this is just pure, you know, manufacturing artifacts for, you know, whatever purpose. The detachable jaw, that's the other thing, is they tend to evolve, you know, like the, the, whatever the item is, tends to change over time as people sort of get better at doing it, or they just think of new ways to, to vary it so that their version of it has something unique about it. It's like crop circles getting better over time. You know, wh why would that happen, actually, if this was a genuine phenomenon? There would be some characteristics of it that were always consistent. It wouldn't evolve as culture evolves. So Maybe it's alien culture evolving, Steve. Yeah. That's true. They're getting better at it. <laughs> They're getting better at making You crop think they circles. would have kind of nailed the whole crop circle technology if they actually flew, you know, flew here in a spaceship? They, you think they'd have that already down? Well, one is science, one is art. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have been doing some investigations while we are here in Australia, and we have some video documentation of a very serious scientific investigation that uh, Jay conducted. A fire-breathing dragon is a microphone. <sighs> <laughs>
Hey, no discernible Coriolis effect. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and, and here, I thought I was joking when I said that the theme was poo. It's, it's great. It's great. You should have known better, right? I know, I know. All right, let's get serious now. It's time to get serious with Bob's incomprehensible cosmology segment. Go ahead, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Aww. Aww. Perfect sense to three or four people. <laughs> okay, this was, uh, this was an inter- interesting news item. Oxford uh, physicist um, Roger Penrose made an announcement that he found evidence of events that happened before the Big Bang. Specifically, he said he found these circular, concentric circle, circular structures in the cosmic mi- microwave background radiation. Now, when you talk about the Big Bang and you're talking about events happening before the Big Bang, it's kind of a, kind of a meaningless statement. I mean, it doesn't, it's not very scientific. I mean, if, the Big Bang is an explosion of space and time. Presumably before the Big Bang, there was no, space and time did not exist, so how could an event occur before the Big Bang? So uh, it's kind of like asking yourself, you know, what were you thinking before you were conceived? It's kind of, a, kind of like a, me- a meaningless question. But to put this discovery that Roger, and, Roger Penrose and his uh, colleagues made, he, I think it was in the mid-2000s, he came up with a theory called the conformal cyclic cosmology, which is a very, very unusual theory. His idea is that the universe consists of these eons. Basically, you've got a Big Bang event, you've got the universe expanding for trillions and trillions of years, and eventually it's the heat death of the universe, nothing could live, there's no usable energy, there's no energy gradient anywhere that could be used for, to support any type of life or technology. So it's the end of the universe, but supposedly there's this transition from this end of the universe where the universe is just so immensely big we can't even imagine it, and then it transitions right into another Big Bang, and creating a new, a new Big Bang, a new eon, that, which is, which is an, another cycle. And it just keeps going, so the universe doesn't really begin or end, it just cycles through these, these different eons. And the way he explains it, it's kind of, obviously it's kind of heady stuff, but the way he explains it is, the big picture is that the end of the universe apparently is going to look very similar to the beginning of the universe in some fundamental ways that kind of forces this transition back into the Big Bang. And one way that he describes this is, is black holes. Black holes essentially suck, eat information. They just suck in all this matter, they're eating information, and uh, they're increasing the entropy, and then eventually... If these black holes evaporate, this information kind of disappears from the universe. It's just cut out of the universe. So basically, if you're removing information, you're reducing entropy back again. So there, here you have the end of the universe having low entropy, the beginning of the universe also having low entropy. So that kind of similarity is kind of forcing this transition somehow. I'm not Bob, sure how this works. What's information? What do you mean by information? Just, um, just matter. Just anything, just bits of the universe. You know, just so light organized and matter. Light. Anything, and matter. anything that goes in there. I mean, if, they, if you're taking in matter and then kind of just, uh, and then disappearing somehow when the black hole evaporates, you're just kind of, you're lowering entropy, apparently. And also so, to put this into context, I mean, he, his idea, Penrose is saying that uh, the, the notion that there's a bounce, you know, basically that the universe collapses at some point back down to a singularity and then another Big Bang occurs. He's saying, no, that doesn't occur. Yeah, it's kind of like a, a direct transition. There's yeah. No, there's no contraction phase. Right, so the, the trick is, how do you get from a really large universe that has been expanding for, what, trillions of years right. to another singularity? Right. And he's saying, well, if you look at the math, it all, the math all converges so that the, this heat death end of the universe actually has all the same properties as right. 
the singularity of the Bing Bang. And the critical piece there, right, was the when the last tiny little right. bit of matter disappears. Yeah, this is another way to look at it. Yeah. Aside from the black holes, another way to look at it is when this, the last particle kind of decays and you've got just, this, just energy and no matter. I mean, without matter, time kind of loses its meaning in a sense. Right. And you've got, you could also say that entropy is, you know, the, the order of the universe, the entropy is infinite. And so you're saying time doesn't matter? <laughs> when, it's a matter of time. <laughs> oh, I tried to save you, Jay. Whatever, Jay. But uh, <laughs> so infinite entropy is, it's, in, you know, infinity is kind of like zero. They're kind of synonymous in a way. So infinite entropy is like zero entropy. So that's like, again, you've got the end of the universe similar to the beginning of the universe. And somehow, because of these similarities, it's forcing this, the Big Bang to kind of just start all over again. Yeah, but Bob, when I, when I was trying to wrap my mind around this, the one bit that I think helped was the notion that when the matter is gone, there is no time, right? So essentially an infinite amount of time could go by from that point to the, the, next, right. the next Big Bang, the next singularity. So yeah. you mm -hmm. could say, well, how could, how could all this happen? Well, that's because there's no time. So you, know, you, you, could, you could basically run the, run the equations all the way to the end, the infinite time, where they converge on essentially a sing another right. singularity. That was <laughs> the only way I... That, very good, yes. That's the way I can okay. make sense of Bob, it. Bob, I right? don't get those. So if, as long as there's one molecule in existence, time exists... And if it, yeah, because time, you can, if, if, if there's matter there, then you can, matter will move through space and time, but without it there, and it's just energy, I mean, it's, yeah, it's kind of hard, I mean, I'm not really pretending to really fully grasp any of this, this, this is kind of, this is what the people are saying, this is what Roger is saying, so the point is, though, that this is obviously a controversial theory that he came up with, and this is, seems to be a bit of evidence that supports it, so what he found by combing through this uh, cosmic microwave background radiation, which is the afterglow of the Big Bang, uh, with all these temperature variations. Thank you. Um, looking through this data, he found this structure. Now, these structures were found, then they shouldn't be there because inflation theory says this, this stuff should be random. There should not be any structures. There shouldn't be anything like this. So he interprets this. Somehow he goes from this structure, which shouldn't be there, which, of course, I, I, make, you know, I grant that. That doesn't seem like it should be there. But he interprets this as that this is evidence of an event, like... Um, black holes colliding and releasing a titanic amount of information or a, a titanic amount of energy that kind of bleeds into our eon uh, that, so that we can see it. So he thinks this is evidence of, of some sort of energy release, black, hole, black holes colliding. And then presumably at the end of our universe in trillions of years, a similar situation could kind of leave a fingerprint for the next eon that happens. So my, my take on a lot of this, though, is I talked to, to Pamela Gay about this, and uh, she had a very good point. In a couple of years, I mean, this information was derived from the, uh, the WMAP satellite, which, which maps the cosmic microwave background radiation. Um, in a couple of years, we're going to have the Planck data, uh, which is another satellite that's mapping this in much higher resolution. I think this can, kind of, this can turn into like a face on Mars scenario where the low resolution data, you kind of see these patterns that look compelling, but then when you get the high resolution information, you're like, well, the, the patterns just kind of disappear. So... Uh, if I had a bet, I would bet that that's what's going to happen in a couple of years. They're going to kind of say, oh, this, these patterns really aren't there. The other thing, the other problem was that Penrose is saying that these particles are going to need to be massless for his theory to really come true. These particles are going to need to be massless. Uh, I've never heard of, Steve, have you ever heard of any theories or data to suggest that in the future particles will, will lose their mass? I think Higgs would have a, an issue with that. Higgs, right? Yeah, also, he's a bozo. And then a final... <laughs> <laughs> a, a final point, I think Stephen Hawking would have a problem as well because I, lately he changed his mind, I think, in 2005 about black holes. 
um, in, you know, eating information. I think his, the latest thinking, at least by him and a lot of other physicists, is that black holes don't destroy information, that somehow this information can be emitted back into the universe, so it's not fully lost. And I think uh, we actually contacted him, and we got a quote uh, from Stephen Hawking addressing oh. the, this convention and addressing this issue. Steve, can you play that? Sure. Roger Penrose is a drawing goal. And by the way, listen to the skeptic's guide to the universe. It rocks. Aww. <laughs> oh, that's so nice of Dr. Hawkins. What a nice guy. Yeah. What a guy. Yeah, giving us his time like that. So, we have to have a monkey news item, right? Although monkey. this is not a monkey. This is a, this is an ape. It's a chimpanzee, a male chimpanzee from Guinea. And what he's doing there, if you can see... This sapling is actually a man-made trap. It's a trap! <laughs> That's Admiral Akbar. We know. We know, Jay. Yeah, we got it, Jay. You don't have to explain the joke. <laughs> <laughs> you have to explain it. It doesn't go in the act. Okay. Set up to catch, you know, bush meat. Uh, it's not actually set to catch chimpanzees, but they often run afoul of these, and they get injured as well as a lot of other animals unintentionally. So what um, scientists have discovered is that this one troop of chimpanzees has figured out how to deactivate the traps. And that's what this chimpanzee is doing. They, they grab a hold of the sapling and they shake it until the, the trap deactivates. They, they observed this activity six different times in five different chimpanzees. It wasn't always the same chimpanzee. Two of the six times they successfully deactivated the trap. The other four times they didn't. But on none of the occasions did they, were they injured by the trap. So they never fell prey to the trap itself, and a third of the time they were able to actually deactivate it. They also found that this troop of chimpanzees suffers fewer injuries from these traps than do other troops. So they are actually protecting themselves by deactivating these traps. So this definitely goes in the primate column in terms of the Monkey versus bird. Versus monkey versus bird. Yeah. 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 Long, long-suffering uh, controversy. Yeah, no bird could do that, that's for sure. Well, I wouldn't say that. We saw a bird at the Tarango Zoo crack open an egg with a rock. I know babies who can crack open eggs. <laughs> <laughs> then Baby again, couldn't a, do that. Then again, birds could fly right over that trap. <laughs> that's true. Fair enough. True. Just saying. <laughs> All right. Rebecca, tell us about your anti-anti-vax activism. <laughs> Anti-anti-vax, yes. I mentioned this during the activism panel yesterday, but I know not all of you were there because there was, I don't know, something else going on somewhere. Um, I think they were all at the bar or something, I guess. Um, but yes, we had, uh, on Skeptic, we had a really great win this week. Basically, one of the skeptics, Elise, who's a, a mother in Chicago who writes a lot about vaccinations and, and fights against the anti-vaccine propaganda, she found out that uh, Age of Autism was promoting this fundraiser they were doing. They were trying to raise money to pay for public service announcements that would run in front of movies uh, starting from Thanksgiving, which was this past Thursday, and running for the following week. That's the most, um, one of the, mo the most popular uh, times to hit the movies in America. So we're talking about a huge amount of people possibly seeing these anti-vaccine ads, um, which were basically fear-mongering about mercury in, in vaccines. And so Elise got the list of all the theaters that they were targeting. She found that most of them were AMC theaters, which is one of the largest uh, chains of cinemas in the U.S. And 
called on our readers to help us out and to contact their local theater and make sure that they weren't going to run these ads. Um, particularly if you know you were near a theater that was on the list, go in person, write a letter, an email, call, let them know that uh, it's irresponsible of them to run a fear-mongering ad. And the thing is, time was short. We had maybe a week before the ads were supposed to start running. They had already, uh, apparently, what they had said was that they had already purchased the time and that they were going to run. We figured that the best we could do was to teach AMC a lesson and hope that in the future they wouldn't accept such things without giving them some serious consideration first. Uh, but what actually happened was that our, uh, our, our readers just flooded the AMC website with complaints. They have... Um, one of, one of our readers started a complaint, and then all you have to do is go to that link and click, I have this problem, too. Well, within just a few hours, you know, we had had thousands of people go there and, and log a complaint. And uh, it was to the point where it got on, um, I, I tweeted about it, it got on Twitter's homepage, um, and spread from there, it got on Reddit. And, and so the poor spokesman for AMC was basically left to run around and um, do some serious damage control because it was pretty obvious that people were angry. And within just a couple of days, we got word from AMC that they would not run the ads. Age of Autism had to post uh, a, a wonderful thing. That was, it was this sad little, oh, wow, this, this small group of... of anti-anti-vax, <laughs> or I think they, they said uh, something about how we're like mercury proponents or something like that, like we just love mercury and that's why we do this. Um, <laughs> Mercury's the best element ever. Um, so yeah, they were just, they were just whining um, about how we had, um, you know, rushed in and bullied AMC into, into pulling the ads. Um, and so it looks like they might try it again at some point, but I think it's really good news that within just the space of a few days, um, thanks to our readership that was just really motivated, um, we managed to shut them down and really piss off the anti-vaxxers. So. And actually, let, let me also just say that a, a huge part of that is thanks to you guys. Um, I think here in Australia, your methods of facing off against the anti-vaxxers is inspiring. You know, you don't just um, you don't just criticize them on blogs and podcasts and things. You actually get out there and you lobby against them hard and you shut them down at the source. And I just want to encourage all of you to, if you're not already involved in what the Australian uh, anti-anti-vaxxers are doing, get involved because they're doing really wonderful work um, and you're actually saving lives. So can we get a round of applause for all the Australians who are doing that? Yeah, that really is, you know, the, the Australian, you know, anti-anti-vaxxers uh, are really kicking our butt in terms of being activists and, and uh, scoring some wins. But this is, this is really good progress, and it's, I love listening to the Age of Autism wine. Oh, God, they were so angry. They're so good at it. <laughs> yeah. <You> know, <laughs> These being the same people who last Thanksgiving mocked up a photo of Steve eating a baby for Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah. I'm not even making that up. That's that was a mock? Was. I don't know how they got that picture. <laughs> Well, that was at the, the annual baby-eating conference. Right. And, <laughs> right. and you, you may notice a lot of, um, of your colleagues walking around with badges saying Bonnie Offit. And 
That is a, a campaign. I think David Gorski kicked it off. You know, he wrote a blog post called I Am Bonnie Offit, basically making fun of Age of Autism for you know, running this, this blog post, which was this really paranoid nonsense about maybe this, you know, that Bonnie Offit, Paul Offit's wife, who's, you know, Paul Offit has written a lot of books about uh, vaccines and, you know, criticized the anti-vax loons. And, uh, you know, his wife is Bonnie Offit. And there, so basically the, the point of it was to say, oh, I think that she's pretending to be all these other people and, you know, writing and commenting and blogging under other people's names. It's all just this conspiracy of the Offits, right? It was all just complete nonsense. So Gorski thought it would be fun to start, like, you know, like, I, I am Spartacus. No, I am Spartacus. <laughs> you know, to do an I am Bonnie Offit campaign. And there that spawned a lot of uh, blog posts basically saying, no, I'm Bonnie. And then drawing these really tenuous, re illogical connections to explain why you're actually Bonnie Offit. So it, it's, it, that meme is spread to this conference, and that's why you see so many people walking around with that uh, name tag on. Thanks. It's good fun. But of course... <laughs> ooh. We're, we're broadcasting to you from inside a Masonic temple. I'd like to point out that normally when we do these live shows, we're all together at one table, but there's something in between us right now. And what's in between us, you can't really tell because it's covered, but this is like a solid marble altar. <laughs> so we'll actually be murdering something later on yeah, in the right. show. <laughs> I believe that you all have raffle tickets. <laughs> Hang on to this. <laughs> but, uh, Jay, um, you actually are a Freemason, I understand. I am a Freemason, and I feel really weird right now. <laughs> 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 uh, my quick story is um, probably about 20 years ago, uh, some of my friends were Freemasons, and they asked me to join, so I'm like, I don't know anything about this organization, and they explained it to me. And basically, the way it was described to me, which today I'll tell you is very accurate. It was a way for us to uh, to donate our time for causes. So basically, um, after I became a Freemason, I did bingo. <laughs> so, was, but, it, was it evil bingo? <laughs> <laughs> the bingo is also evil. <laughs> but, um, you know, being someone on the inside, you know, I've had, I've had people say, well, you're like one of those members where you don't really know what's going on. You know, the conspiracy theories fly around uh, around the Freemasons. And I can see why it totally makes sense and everything. And I'll tell you, one of the, this is a side note, one of the best things I got in those early years of being a Freemason was I met a lot of people that served in World War II that were Freemasons. And I, you know, just meeting people of that age and of that generation that went through that, it was, it was incredible, you know. And I did end up asking questions like, well, you know, in the history of the Freemasons, what was up? And, you know, every single one of them said, oh, that's just, you know, that's just a bunch of crap. So just to give you a quick background on, on the Freemasons, where, you know, a lot of people think that it's a very old organization. How old do you guys think it is? Like, you know, throw some dates out. How, how long have they been around? Ten years. <laughs> Ten thousand. A couple of days. Wow, that was lame. Sarcastic bastards. <laughs> they think it was formed in the uh, late 1600s, or 1717 is a date that I've heard many times. It's not that old. It's not, it's not something, you know, it's, it's old, but it's not like 2,000 years old, like Egyptian type old. Um, there's three basic principles that the Masons follow. One is brotherly love, which is quite simple. One is relief, which is, you know, donating your time and helping humanity. And the other is truth. Sounds subversive. In, uh, <laughs> in the lodge that I belong to, um, 
they said to us, we can't talk about religion or politics when you're there, when, when we're together as Freemasons. We, we never did that. For, and the reasons were, were the, those were the things that we would be disagreeing about the most. It wasn't a place to go and debate about each other's religions or beliefs or whatever. To rewind a little bit, before I became a Freemason, you know, I said to them, you know, I, I read stuff about it, and I, I asked people, I said, I don't believe in God. You know, I don't, don't really know if God exists. So you immediately have... broke the first rule. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Good job. <laughs> so the way it was explained to me, because that was, that was my perception, they said it's really not about belief in God, it's belief in a supreme being. And I said, well, I don't really have a belief in a supreme being. I said, if there is a supreme being, it's the universe. And the universe became conscious through beings like us. There could be aliens, but you know, we know that we have consciousness. And collectively, we're it. You know, we are the universe. The universe is conscious. It's, it's a kind of weird but profound thought. So I said that to them, and they were like, that's good. That's it. That was it. So I was like, okay, I'll do it. You know, I, so I, I joined, and I went through the, the process of, uh, you know, I, I don't want to use the word rituals or whatever, but, you know, and just to give you, like, the basic once-over. Yeah. Spankings. Becoming a Freemason is a, is a series of lessons about humanity. Thank you, sir. May I have another? <laughs> Can you tell us about the relief part? After a couple of hours, they feel pretty good. <laughs> we're going to kill you. Yeah. <laughs> you Rebecca. knew what you were in for going into this. Rebecca, so, didn't you say this was going to be a quick story? Some, so. reasons yeah. why, some reasons why people believe the Freemasons are, are an occult or, or have a lot of uh, hold on society or pulling the strings behind the scenes is that there are some secret things about the Freemasons, and there's some reasons why those originally those things were secret. And it's really something that you could read on your own about, and it is very interesting. But real quick, like, secret handshakes were in place to uh, allow people to not only be able to identify each other, but it was more like if you're in the brotherhood, you, you can trust that person. And it's easy for us today. We live in a society where it's not that dangerous, except here in Australia. <laughs> But they don't allow insects into the Masons, so... Or arachnids. But let's say you were traveling... Did <laughs> <laughs> so I say? They're not insects. The second time I've made that mistake yeah. on the show, by the way. Just saying. This time we were just avoiding the flood of emails from pedants and entomologists. Yeah. <laughs> if you think of it as a brotherhood, it was just a way for us to identify each other, right? I've never actually used a secret handshake ever. You know, I've, I've done it as like, hey, we're doing the secret handshake. But it, it you know, doesn't really apply today. So uh, if you look at the, uh, the graphic that we have up here, you see the eye in the pyramid. Um, a lot of people think, and that the, you, this appears on some U.S. money, you can see that graphic, and a lot of people think that that is specifically a Masonic symbol, but it actually isn't. That symbol, uh, as it appears on U.S. money, was, was uh, the four people who decided uh, to use that symbol. One of them was Benjamin Franklin, and he was a Mason, the other three weren't. And the, the person who came, came up with the design actually was some other artist that, that randomly came up with it as a, as a graphical element. Uh, it might have some symbolic significance, but it really isn't associated, from my knowledge, with the Masons. So if you, if you look up the Masons online, you'll see that they are, the, the conspiracy theories around them are a little interesting. It is thought by even, you know, current modern day conspiracy theorists that the Freemasons were essentially formed by the Illuminati, which is a, a European group that the, the purpose of which is to take over the world, right? That's always the, the, the ultimate purpose of these dark mass 
uh, grand conspiracy uh, groups. So the Illuminati were trying to take over the world, and the Masons basically, basically were an outgrowth of them. This is on the, uh, the $1 bill in American currency, but that's basically the back of the American seal, right? The other front side is the eagle with the arrows and whatever is in its other claw. So that's, that's why it's on the money. It's the, it's the seal of the United States. So you can see what they did in this picture here is they essentially drew like a Star of David or a hexagram, if you want to call it that. And they, even though it's not perfectly symmetrical, but they made it work so that you could pick out the, the letters A-S-M-O-N, and they rearranged those to spell Mason. Right? So this is a hidden Masonic symbol woven into the, you know, the, the symbol of the United States. And the, so this is basically just you know, like paranoid minds gone haywire, right? Just looking for hidden symbols everywhere and thinking that because they can jury rig these letters, you know, out of the seal of the U.S., that that is evidence of this secret, you know, Masonic conspiracy to essentially take over the United States and then eventually the entire world. This is what's the, the contemporary Masonic conspiracy theory. This is, that, this is the level... Where, that, where they're at. They also point out that if you read the, the Latin inscription there, Novus Orbo Sectorum, they read that as New World Order, right? Because that's what they think. So that's the, the purpose of the Illuminati and the Masons is to establish a New World Order, which is basically them controlling the world. But it actually doesn't mean that. Uh, that's a mistranslation. Um, it means um, like a new order going into the future, not a New World Order. So, and if they are controlling things, you know, they put this on United States money. They're not doing a good job. The dollar is down. So, right. Or maybe they wanted the dollar to be down. (laughs) Maybe they're doing such a good job that we can't perceive it. Um, Well, that's why that's where the conspiracy theories become unfalsifiable, right? Because any lack of evidence for the conspiracy, that's because the conspiracy is working, right? And any evidence that there isn't a conspiracy, that was planted by the conspiracy theorists. So once you get inside the conspiracy, you're drawing pentagrams on the back of your money, right? I think it's time now for science or fiction. And we are going to be joined by a special guest. Come up here, little Alex. No, 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 Alex. Up here. Yes. <laughs> you're, not sac- you're not sacrificing me. Uh, there we go. He's too smart. He's too smart. <laughs> so l- last night, uh, Alex uh, essentially bid for the privilege of participating in science or fiction today, and uh, he informed us that although he does not hold any advanced degrees in any science, he is what we call a GSK, a generally smart kid. <laughs> so we'll see. Or he's a ringer. Yeah, I think he's a ringer, personally. Yeah. So he's got a little radio in his ear or something. He's got like a team of scientists out in the hallway. All right. So here are the three science or fiction items. And I'll remind everybody how this works. I'm going to read three items. Two are real. One is fake. We're going to get the opinions. Well, first I'm going to poll the audience by applause and see which one you guys think is the fake. And then we'll get the opinion of our expert panel. And then we'll um, see how they influenced you. And then I'll, I'll reveal the answer. So here they are. Item number one. A new study finds that extended jet lag can cause memory and learning deficits with associated brain changes that persist for at least a month following return to usual schedule. Item number two. 
Astronomers have discovered supermassive active galaxies dating from 1.5 billion years after the Big Bang, contradicting current models of galaxy formation, which predicts much smaller galaxies at that time. And item number three, a new exhaustive database of mammal fossils reveals, contrary to prior belief, that mammals were significantly increasing in size prior to the extinction of the dinosaurs. So Alex, as our guest up here, you have the privilege, and it is a privilege, of going first. Great. <laughs> well, wait, aren't, aren't you going to poll the audience first? Oh, that's right. I don't have a short... See, I'm jet-lagged. <laughs> don't try to influence uh, them. That's nice why I try. put that in there. That's I knew I would need that excuse at some point today. Wait, so are you saying that's science, then? <laughs> He's trying gave to it trick away. us. So let's poll the audience. So you uh, applaud when you think for the one that you think is the fake. So how many people think that the first one about jet lag is the fake? Okay. How many think that the second one about the supermassive galaxies is the fake? And how many think that the uh, mammals getting bigger even before the dinosaurs went extinct is the fake? All right. So it sounds like three, then one, then two. So, Alex, you've got to set them straight. Tell us, so tell us what you think. Okay. New study about jet lag a month after the return to usual schedule. How can that make sense? How can you have a month after the jet lag? Usually it only lasts the deficits and things like that that you receive. Usually it only lasts a few days. So a month returning to schedule from extended jet lag. I think that one sounds a um, bit iffy, but I'll go on to the next one. I already like him better than Bob. <laughs> Everybody does. Now, the astronomers discovering supermassive galaxies, that makes quite a bit of sense. The galaxies were very big back then, and, well, no, really, they were. Galaxies were quite large back then, so were stars, the usual kind of thing. Um, and also, on fossils, well, of course we were getting bigger. We started off the size of a rat, then we grew to the size of a beaver, and now we're the size of an average-sized hominid, or ourselves. So I'm going to go with item number one being the fiction because it's the only one that really stands out as truly fictitious to me. Well done. All right, thank you. Jay, go next. Wow. <laughs> that, was, that was a real humbling experience. And think, guys... For real, just think about that. This kid is brilliant. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, all right, so I actually listened to, to what Alex said, and these, I, I, I can agree with him on the first one. I mean, you know, it, it depends. Like, how long are you, um, like, you go away, like our trip, for example, we're here for a couple of weeks, kind of get into the rhythm here, then we go back for a couple of, you know, it might take a, three or four days, like he was saying, to, to get back on track, maybe a week. But there could be something that happens with going against the, the, the uh, rhythm that we have, that we're used to, that we're pretty much locked in unless we're traveling, that, that uh, can cause a deficit. Um, the thing is, 
for at least a month following that that's the thing that i'm not i'm not sure on i i doubt that it, that it would take a month um okay the second one um if i'm reading this correctly it sounds like they're saying that uh they they're surprised to find supermassive galaxies that date back that far they expect there to be smaller ones and then they they as they collide and collect that there would be bigger and bigger ones that's really interesting i definitely didn't remember reading anything about that and I also agree with Alex. I think that's it's possible, definitely possible. The new exhaustive database one about the the mammals being growing in size. I, I'm not so sure about this because it says significantly increasing in size. And I thought the whole reason why mammals were successful back then was because they were small. They were doubling in size slowly because if you're this big, it's pretty easy to get to this big. That's a good point. Doubling in size. It's easy when you're very very small. You know, I just bought a house recently, and I want to talk to you about finances. Maybe after the show you can help me balance my checkbook. I'm 50 bucks a week. U.S. or Australian? Australian, because we just got ahead. So, to Bob's chagrin, I'm going to GWA. I'm going with Alex. Right. Rebecca? Wow, it's a recipe for disaster, but I'm going to disagree with Alex on the first point. Oh, I know, I know. This, this isn't going to turn out well, I know. But, um, but I, do, I do know that, um, you know, you, it's, it feels like you recover from jet lag fairly quickly after a few days. But um, I, I think that the reason why is that maybe uh, a few weeks after you're, you're back to your normal schedule, you get tired, but you, you just sort of pass it off as, as something else. Well, I guess I've been really busy, I've been stressed. Um, but in fact, it really does take your brain quite a while to adjust to different sleeping patterns, and so jet lag could affect it. I think I think a month makes sense. Um, I am going to agree with Alex on the the second one. The galaxies were very large back then, <laughs> and that's all I know about that. All, everything I know about that I learned from Alex. So uh, that makes you. sense. Yeah. No, thank you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Which, which leaves us with the idea that mammals uh, were significantly increasing in size prior to the extinction of the dinosaurs. And that, that sounds fishy to me. And I'm going to have to go with the audience on this one and say that that is the fiction. All right, Bob. Everybody get settled. All right. Hunker <laughs> <sighs> down. Um, I think it, for the first one, I think the, with, with the jet lag, I think the key word there is extended jet lag. I think a simple trip, even, even a simple trip to Australia might not qualify for extended jet lag. And I know that when you mess up with your day-night, normal day-night cycle, it can really mess you up. Um, so, I'm gonna, that, so that one kind of makes sense. I, it makes sense to me that there'd be some learning deficits and uh, some memory problems. A month seems a little bit long to me, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think that Time's was science. Up. <laughs> Thank you, Jay. Thank you, Jay. Steve, how much did they pay? <laughs> Whatever it was, it wasn't worth it. Um, the, the, the second one, the uh, supermassive active galaxies, I think the theory predicts that galaxies should have been small back then, but it, it doesn't surprise me that they're finding big ones. I'm not sure what supermassive exactly means in terms of solar masses or whatever, but, uh, and it makes sense that they were active because I think galaxies were generally more active back then anyway. Um, it means big. What? He's defining massive for you. He said you don't know what it means. No, no. It means big. Yeah, but this is super massive. Um, that means so really say... big. <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking him Bob, out of my suitcase. Bob, you just got to end. 
Just you cut yourself out of your own misery and just Listen. get it over with. Just, just do it. Just pick one. Listen, punk, you're lucky you're way over there. Okay, last one, right? Last one out, right? Last one. Um, that one, the, the, uh, the mammals significantly increasing in size prior doesn't make much sense. I mean, common wisdom has always been that once these niches opened up, mammals exploded. So I'm going to agree uh, with Rebecca. I think she's kind of retroactively agreeing with me that it's... Uh, is that what that the, was? Yeah, that, that <laughs> three is fiction. It's precognition that she's precognitively agreeing with you? Yes. Yeah. All right, Evan? What's the old saying? You never, you never want to perform on stage with animals uh, or children? <laughs> I, think, I think we have a reason. So we've got think, a child I think we see Jay. exactly yeah. why that is the case. Um, so I'll hurry this along. Uh, I'm going to agree with uh, Bob and Rebecca. I believe the ones about mammals being significantly increasing in size. Prior to the extinction of the dinosaur, that one is fiction. All right, we'll quickly poll the audience again to see if my panel of skeptical experts has altered your opinion at all. So who thinks the uh, extended jet lag is the fiction? Who thinks the supermassive galaxy is the fiction? And who thinks the mammals getting bigger before the dinosaurs died out is the fiction? I'm sorry, guys. I don't think you had much influence. You know, it's not Jay. looking good. It's not looking good for Alex. Yeah, Jay and Alex. I don't know. I don't know. All right. Well, let's start with uh, the second one. Uh, since everyone, except for a few people in the audience, think that uh, this one is true, astronomers have discovered supermassive active galaxies dating from 1.5 billion years after the Big Bang, uh, contradicting current models of galaxy formation, which predicts much smaller galaxies at this time. And this one is science. Yes. So far, so good for the panel. Uh, so yeah, they found so supermassive. Uh, these galaxies are five to ten times the mass of the Milky Way, which is a very the Milky Way is a big galaxy. So ten times bigger than the Milky Way is supermassive. And now, and uh, at the current time, there are massive galaxies like this, but they're very inactive. In fact, the biggest galaxies that we've seen don't have many or at all um, star formation. They have just old stars. They don't really have, they're not making new stars. They've already eaten up all of their dust and, and their interstellar material to, to, for, for star formation. So they're not very active. So now we have... That's what you meant by active? I, yeah, star I, formation. I, oh, I just assumed it was like an active nuclei, like quasars and... No, no, no. Okay. Active meant star formation. Okay. So... Um, our models of how galaxies form predicts that really early after the Big Bang, there should have only been small active galaxies. And then the bigger ones were, you know, as Jay was saying, they, you know, they eat other galaxies. Eventually they use up all of their interstellar material, and you get these massive but not very active galaxies. This contradicts that. This is exactly the opposite of what we would expect to see, these massive active galaxies, you know, very soon after the Big Bang. The, the one quibble they had on the on, uh, the evidence is that, you know, of course, this is based upon redshift. The farther things away, the more redshifted they are. And so you, you, you uh, date things, you know, how far they are away, therefore, in the past, based upon their redshift. And they said, you know, if we're a little bit off on the redshift, these galaxies can be two to two and a half billion years after the, the, the Big Bang. And that would make a big difference, actually. That would bring it a lot closer to our current models, but still, it would still not be in sync with our current models of galaxy formation. So either way, this is either a big or a minor problem for our current models, and uh, astronomers are going to have to rethink the whole notion of the evolution of galaxies based upon this observation, which is cool. All right, let's go to item number one. 
a new study finds that extended jet lag can cause memory and learning deficits with associated brain changes that persist for at least a month following return to usual schedule. Jay and Alex think that this one is the fiction. Everyone else thinks that this one is science. The majority of the audience thinks that this one is science. And this one is science. Bastard. <laughs> Sorry, Alex. <laughs> you dished him. I love you, Alex. You me look good. Bastard. <laughs> Did you call him a tosser? <laughs> Is that like a um, drongo? So, uh, yeah, this was a study in hamsters. Uh, <laughs> because hamsters have a very strong circadian rhythm, and therefore they are the animal model for jet lag. Hamsters. So where'd they fly them to? Do <laughs> <laughs> Amsterdam. Do Amsterdam. They, uh, they switched their, their, their you know, day-night uh, cycle for a couple of weeks, and they switched it back for, again, a couple of weeks. So that's why it's extended jet lag, Bob. You're right. It's not just one shift. You had to do it a couple of times, like over, over a month or so. And then they would test them out for a month, you know, doing mazes and you know, learning new mazes and stuff. And the, the uh, hamsters that were jet lagged really could not learn the new, the new stuff. They could not learn the new mazes or the, whatever the tricks they were trying to teach them. Uh, they had significant impairment in their learning and memory. And that stayed that way for a month, which is how long they followed them out. It, they, they didn't return to baseline. I said it's at least a month because they didn't continue to follow them. It might have been even longer than that. Now, were the hamsters, when they got to their destination, going out to the pub a lot? And yeah. <laughs> I'm wondering how that's affecting my jet lag. Were they right attending skeptical conferences? Right, and right. Like yeah. But also, I said with associated brain changes, what they found is that in the hippocampus, because, you know, they sacrificed the hamsters Aww. at the end. Um, well, we've got an ulcer to do it. Why don't we do it now? Yeah, right. Well, uh, the ulcer's right here, Alex. Um, and, uh, yeah, anyone really jet lag? Maybe we could check this out for ourselves. So, they, they, you know, you have to slice open their brains. There's no way around that. And what they found was that in their hippocampus, the hippocampus is the the little uh, seahorse-shaped structure in the brain that is very critical to short-term memory formation and also the connection between short-term memory and long-term memory, they found that uh, they had fewer neurons in the hippocampus. They were, the hippocampus is one part of the brain that forms a lot of new neurons. It has a lot of neural stem cells. It grows a lot of new neurons because that's how you make new memories, right? You've got to make new connections. So it makes sense that it would be a very active, very biologically active part of the brain, making new cells. Well, the hamsters had fewer neurons uh, they, and fewer stem cells for, to make new neurons. So there was actually anatomical, physiological brain changes. Steve, I'm confused about that. So on a daily basis, we're constantly having that... that yeah that data dump, right? So we yeah. learn the stuff of that day, and then what happens? Those neurons, when we sleep, like, go away, and then new ones form the next day? No, well, those, you get new neurons, and sleep is a very critical component of forming those long-term memories. So you're actually, you know, making new connections um, in order to create those new memories. So the brain atrophies with jet lag? Is that what you're saying? Well, that's what they found. That, and this is, a, this is uh, significant because... Um, you know, obviously, you know, we make one trip a year to Australia, then uh, it's probably not going to have any long-term effects, although you probably should plan on um, the jet lag being maybe longer than you thought. But 
for shift workers, you know, who are constantly shifting back from, you know, different schedules, this is, a, this is significant. I mean, they could actually cause permanent, um, that the fear is permanent cognitive problems or for people who do fly frequently, whose job it is to fly around the world. So this, in fact, you know, jet lag uh, is listed by the World Health Organization as a risk factor for cancer. And shift work is like actually listed as a medical risk factor. So there is, you know, increasing evidence that this, uh, you know, our brains, you know, did evolve to have a circadian rhythm and, you know, a day-night uh, cycle. And, you know, we obviously didn't evolve to fly halfway around the world in 21 hours. That hasn't been going on long enough for there to be any selective pressures there. So we just aren't adapted, you know, to deal with these kind of changes. Because, you know, when would that happen in our evolutionary milieu, right? I mean, back on, on the savannah or whatever, you would, there wouldn't be a situation in which you're suddenly day and night would be shifted. Uh, so we just don't, just don't deal with it well. So that's interesting. Now, this may lead to, you know, uh, ways to mitigate it. Um, I know it's like a lot of people take melatonin, which really doesn't do much, and it doesn't address any of these issues. Uh, so there really isn't any treatment for this either. It's just you just got to deal with it. See, that's not a learning experience, Alex. Yeah, but I didn't come here to learn. I came here to have fun. So you basically don't. He didn't come here spirits. to make friends. He came here to win. <laughs> that too. You I learn. Right about you that. learn more from failure than success. Just keep that in mind. That's why Bob is so. Smart. Apparently. Um, let's, go, let's go on item number three. A new exhaustive database of mammal fossils reveals, contrary to prior belief, that mammals were significantly increasing in size prior to the extinction of the dinosaurs. This one is fiction. So congratulations to the audience and everyone on my left who did a great job. Now, but there is a new database of mammal fossils, and uh, they have been following in this database, so it's great because you can collect you know, fossil evidence from, you know, hundreds of different species and then look through that data for trends. And what scientists have done is do, do this where they say, all right, let's look at the, the average size of mammals over time and see what happened. And what happened was they actually stayed quite small until after the demise of the dinosaurs. And then shortly after the dinosaurs were wiped out, they exploded in size. So they, they became massive. They went from, you know, your average size of like a rat or a rabbit, you know, around that size. They were larger mammals, but on average they were very small, to a, a, an age of gigantism, where there were mammals were much larger than they were today, uh, than they are today. In fact, they mentioned the largest mammal to ever live is, a, is a creature called uh, the Indricotherium transcoralicum. Which, what, do you, what kind of animal do you think that was? Wait, say it again. Indricotherium. One more time. <laughs> so, in, Indricotherium transcoralicum. Alex? <laughs> Come on. I was always taught that the largest mammal on Earth was a blue whale, being the largest creature on Earth, and it is a mammal, an aquatic one. But that is correct. So this, this is, the, I'm sorry, the largest mammal to have ever walked on Earth, I should say. Ah. Uh, uh, All right, good one. <laughs> You got me on that one. Yes, walked on Earth, walked on Earth. Steve, is this some rat-like? Nope. A bear? It's a giant rhinoceros-like oh. animal. Oh. Yeah. Hey, can't those kill you? Oh, yeah. I mean, a giant rhino. <laughs> those can kill you. Right. Well, Alex, thank you for joining us for Science or Fiction. You were thank wonderful. You, Alex. Thank you for accepting yeah. me.
If we come back next year, he's gonna come up back up here with us. Oh yeah, oh, he's yeah. got to. Awesome. When we do that, he'll be just talking in binary at that point. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we we have uh, some time left for some questions and answers. There are microphones set up. I see an active microphone. Okay, we'll take one down here. I have a question about the crystal skull. Do you predict uh, scientists will be baffled? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, they're, they're already befuddled. I don't know if they're quite bamboozled. Run them up. They'll be baffled until they actually look at it. Then right. It'll okay. Then they'll be embarrassed, maybe. Yeah, like, okay. Oh, yeah. Look, every time scientists have looked at these crystal skulls, they've always tra- been able to trace them back to the ni- pretty much the 19th century and to a town in Germany, in fact. Uh, so there was I, one guy cranking out these crystal skulls? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, well, I don't know one guy, but one community of people in Germany that you know, generated all these crystal skulls. Right. I mean, they, they claim that um, there are carving marks on these crystals that can't be explained or, or certainly were not, I should say the cranks say that these crystal skulls were not uh, devised by anything other than um, hu- in human hand carvings, right? And it would take you using a diamond 150 years, so generations of people to make these skulls. But, you know, they've, there's been multiple studies and there's been multiple experts that have taken a look at these. They've run them through microscopes and all sorts of devices. And in every case, they find the, uh, they find the exact uh, metal tools that were used in, uh, in doing the carb marks on these works. And they trace them all back to 19th century technology. So there's really no yeah. mystery here. That is the argument from ignorance, right? Because we don't understand how the skulls were made, they must have been made by aliens. But always, yeah, there's some technique, you know, involved. And if you don't know the technique, it could seem incredible. We just learned how to tear phone books in half earlier today. And it's, and it, but you could do it all because, you know, it looks really impressive, but if you know the technique, you can do it, right? It's just like every magic trick, right, Randy? It seems magical because you know the technique. You know, how they build Stonehenge, how they build the pyramids, how they make these crystal skulls, whatever. Crop circles. Yeah, yeah, crop circles is another one. Yeah, oh yeah, a board and rope and a stake. You know? Spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Once you know the technique, it's like, oh yeah, of course. But if if you're not interested in truly understanding it and all you want to do is mystery monger, then you say, well, this is unexplainable. So confusing unexplained with unexplainable, followed by the argument from ignorance, aliens. Hello, a question maybe for Bob about the quantum mechanics. Now, the observed uh, effects, I was wondering what the largest scale where they actually are observed. I know they're subatomic particles, but does it, do they apply to atoms and even molecules? Quantum effects can extend. I think there's, uh, there's atoms. I think what's called the Steve, a Rydberg atom that actually has an extended... Uh, Electron sphere, electron shell that you can see quantum effects. But, um, yeah, they've gotten up to molecules. There are molecules that, where they can right. they can document quantum effects. I mean, the, it, it's, a know, de, it's a decoherence. It's the interaction yeah. with the environment that, that kind of kind of wipes these away. But uh, yeah, yeah. They, they've seen them in, in you know in, in you know in, in atoms and molecules probably. But I, I don't emotion. know the exact limit yeah. um, where it kind of really falls apart. But um. so the thing is, there's there's quantum effects in people. You know, it's, there, there's no limit to the size at which there's quantum effects. It's just, what's the size of the quantum right, the, effects? Yeah, the wavelength you'd have to measure would be so small. Yeah, so the quantum effects decrease really rapidly as you get above the size of uh, a molecule, you know, a, you know even a, a largest molecule, um, so that it becomes, by the time you get to macroscopic <laughs> stuff, the, the size of the quantum wavelength 
is getting down close to the plank length. You know, it's getting really so tiny right. that it's insignificant and you can ignore it and stuff behaves in a classical way. So that's a better way to think about it. It's not that it's a limit, it's just that the, the, the effect of the quantum wavelength drops, not to zero, but to insignificant size very quickly. And, you know, physicists are, in, are trying to come up with experimental designs in which they can document quantum effects in the largest thing. And, I, I, you know, it seems that over the next, you know, foreseeable amount of time where every now and then this has been happening and I think it will continue to happen. There will be new stories coming out. Quantum physicists have documented quantum effects in the largest thing to date. And then a couple right. of years down the road, someone else will do it in something a little bit bigger. But yeah, that's because we're, be, we're being able to, you know, experimentally document tinier and tinier quantum effects. But we're never going to get up a, no. to a potato, right? I mean, you're not going to be throwing potatoes through a double slit and getting quantum <laughs> effects. Or kittens through a hadron right. collider. Right. And... All right. Oh, Fred Watson, you have something to say about this? Yeah, uh, well, thank you very much. Yeah, I've been uh, thrust up to the microphone because I was shaking my head. And so don't anybody shake your head or else you'll be thrust up. But um, the reason I was shaking my head was because I was bursting to give you the correct answer to this question. Oh, awesome. <laughs> um, it's, uh, what Did you Alex said, talk to What you? you've said is absolutely right. But do you know about these experiments, which I think are in uh, uh, UC Berkeley, which have demonstrated tuning forks measured in microns in mm -hmm. dimension which are simultaneously vibrating and not vibrating. And these are demonstrating oh, quantum behavior. A superposition. Superposition. It's no, I haven't seen that stuff. one. Cool. So don't lose hope with a potato, folks. <laughs> <laughs> a potato that's in two places at once. Way. Awesome. Thanks. I think we know what Alex's science fair project is next year. <laughs> And Steve, no. there's also the Bose-Einstein condensates, which I think yeah. display quantum behavior, and they, they can get to a certain right. size. So look but them up. Those are those that, fascinating. It does raise the point, though, of what kind of quantum behavior you're talking about, right? right? Yeah, because super, I think the, there was another news item, yeah, where they were able to... The, the wavelength, yeah. you know, yeah. So that's true. All, that's right, all right, all right. All right, now we've only got... We're running pretty close to the mark, so we've got about another four questions, so... Okay, so, um, yes, firstly, really want to say thank you for the show. I'm the daughter of two chiropractors and came from a really religious high school, so here I am here, which is pretty amazing. You guys are... It's a, quite literally the escape to reality that I've had. Um, my question is regarding a controversial surgical procedure known as ETS. I'm a... Um, film and animation student. I've been signed on to be the editor for a project investigating this thing. It's um, endoscopic thoracic sympathectomy where the sympathetic nerves are cut off to treat, I think, excessive palm sweating. And I just want to know whether I should really blast this thing or whether I should actually, like, is there any merit to it or is it really as bad as the internet says it is? I don't know. Is the short answer. <laughs> that's, that's a hard one to answer off the top of my head. Yeah, I, mean, I don't think he ever said that before. The broader um, c concept of doing a sympathectomy is yeah. legitimate. I mean, there yeah. are people who have autonomic disorders or different kind of, um, for example, reflex sympathetic dystrophy, or which is now called chronic regional, chronic regional pain syndrome. So there are, there are disorders of the sympathetic nervous system or the autonomic nervous system that are treated essentially by destroying one part of it, which is always a crude fix, right? You know, mm -hmm. the, but uh, in uh, certain very specific applications, it can be beneficial, but it's very hit or, they're all very hit or miss, yeah. just as a broad concept. 
you're taking a chance. And, and usually those things, those kind of procedures are done in a, in a very desperate situation. It certainly isn't the first thing you go to, right? Yeah. This is after you've exhausted all of the reversible treatments, like mm -hmm. trying a medication out, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, and when you've exhausted everything reversible and you're miserable, it's okay, well, you know, this, is, this may help. It's a pretty, you know, modest chance. But this, you know, is helpful in some people. But I see lots of patients who have had them, and they were very unsuccessful. So um, you do, I, th I would say you put it into context. Yeah. I think it's one of the treatments that it's a high-risk, sort of desperate maneuver, and you have to put it into that context. Mm -hmm. If you just look at the numbers, you know, you, you, can, you can blast it and make it seem like it's worthless mm -hmm. or harmful. But if you put it in the context of how it's used, then it, 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 there may be a role for it in certain patients. But the, the concept is reasonable. It's yeah. just what does the evidence show about a specific application of a specific procedure? Okay. All right, thanks. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, the skeptic movement is in, uh, increasing in number. We're getting our message out wider, and we're having increasing success. While there are some unsinkable rubber ducks, how do you see our increasing success affecting the sort of beliefs which continue to be popular in the future and new pseudosciences that may or may not be invented? Well, we're never going to win. You know, there's, there's never going to come a day when we've defeated all of irrationality. But I, I think it's really inspiring to see events like this. And, um, you know, every time we go to a TAM, it, you know, there's another TAM in another part of the world and, uh, and more people. And it's it's really great to see people getting inspired and getting active and like we mentioned earlier with the anti-vax stuff like actively fighting it and stopping it from from happening so it seems to me that we're we're we are winning it's just that we'll never actually win we could shift the balance right yeah. so we could you know make ourselves a resource for the media improve the profile of skeptics and skepticism and science in our culture. I mean, you know, if you look around the world, some cultures are more scientific than others. You know, some countries have larger amounts of pseudoscience or, you know, there's pseudoscience everywhere, but there's different proportions. And I do think that you, know, you can, we can collectively, ha you know, change the, the, the balance of science versus pseudoscience in our in our countries and our cultures, and that's what we're trying to do. Again, it's never going to be a we win, we can all go home. You know, that's not going to happen. The answer is Alex. Alex <laughs> is a representation of education, and I, you know, he's it's probably a very bright child, but I'm sure his parents are educating him with critical thinking. And the guys said this many times: this is a generational project that we're all working on. We're not going to win in our lifetime. We're going to teach children, and they're going to teach children, and slowly, hopefully. You know, people won't even, most people won't even consider the things that we're dealing with today. Hi. Um, Steve, you often talk about following the scientific consensus, which seems to be sensible. My question was, you don't want to ask a bunch of homeopaths whether homeopathy works or parapsychologists whether psi right. works. So how does it work in that sort of context? How do you know who to, who to yeah, ask? Yeah, that's a good question. So the question is, when you're, when you're dealing with a profession, is that profession following a culture of science? So homeopathy itself is not a scientific a profession or culture, you know, chiropractic is like 98% not scientific, not following a culture of science. So they, they, you're talking about internal validity versus external validity, right? So if you ask a homeopath about homeopathy, you may get a, an answer that has internal validity. It may be the answer that a homeopath should give. 
And of course, when you license these professions, it's all, the regulation's all about internal validity. It's all about, yeah, they took the exams and they, and they got the grades that they needed, but it's, it doesn't necessarily say anything about external validity. Is it a transparent science-based profession? That's the answer. You have to understand the culture and the background and the history of the uh, institution or profession that you're dealing with and, and put it into that context. Uh, we just have time left for Jay's quote. Take Before I do the quote, because I don't want to forget, I want to thank Iran, Joe, Rachel, Richard, Tim, Jason, everyone, please, a round of applause for everyone. Thank you. I picked this quote for, for many reasons. As, as a lot of you guys know, um, my fiance and I three days ago got engaged at the Opera House. Um, thank you. And, uh, and George learned a song that I asked him to learn and he played for us, which is our song. Um, and I decided that I wanted to, to take a quote from one of George's songs. Uh, and this one is, in my opinion, it's a skeptical, uh, skeptical way to look at love. It's a, it's a rational way to look at love. So the quote is, everything alive will die someday, but in the meantime, I got to see her smile and that made it okay for a while. To look into her eyes was worth the eventual demise of Earth. Lyrics from the song Everything Alive Will Die Someday from the album Trebuchet, written and performed by George Rapp. Please buy his albums and books in the vendor room. Supplies are running low, so don't wait. <laughs> So thank you to the Australian skeptics. Thank all of you for coming and in making us feel so welcome here. We're having a blast. We really are. Uh, these are the kind of events that keep us going. You ask, you know, how do you do all the work that you do? It's because we get energized by you guys at events like this. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to the Australian Skeptics for showing us such a great time down in Sydney. Just a couple of quick notes and announcements. Uh, first, during the science fiction section, I mentioned that uh, mammals ex increased in size after the extinction of the dinosaurs. And I just want to point out that I was referring, of course, to non-avian dinosaurs for those cladists who include birds under the dinosaur category. Uh, also, a quick announcement, the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe was nominated again this year for the Podcast Award uh, in the Science category. Go to www.podcastawards.com. Uh, if you care to vote, we would appreciate it. Voting closes on December 15th. You can vote once per day for your favorite podcasts, uh, and you will have to confirm your votes by email, so please keep an eye out for that as well. That's it for TAM Australia, and until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. 
If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kinetto and is used with permission. 